Good. If you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Luke 10, 17 through 20. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given to you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Lord, my prayer is that none of us will die and leave this world like Whitney Houston left the world. That none of us leave the world without knowing the experience of rejoicing that our particular name is written in heaven. That's impossible unless you work in us. May those of us who know that rejoicing be revived to rejoice all the more in our daily lives of this reality. And may this be happening through the means of unfolding your word, Holy Trinity. Amen. Is your joy in God's gifts? Or is your joy in God? Is your joy in being used by God in serving and ministering to others? Lord, even, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Is your joy in that above your joy in knowing God? In God knowing you savingly? This passage this morning is a checkup on, on where or what our joy ultimately is in. In your Christian life, do, do you find yourself being bummed out and depressed because your dreams of being used by Jesus in ministry, those expectations are unmet, and therefore... Rejoicing's gone? Or if your dreams of ministry, even demons are subject to us. Look how you're using me. Or your expectations of your family life. Your work life. They're really being met. Is your joy 
more in that than in God Himself. Let's go to the text. Luke 10, verses 17 to 20. Remember the context here. Jesus sent out, beyond, not the twelve, but He sent out 72 other men, two by two, to go into all these towns and cities where Jesus is about to go and enter. He's on His journey to death to Jerusalem. He sent them with the power, His power, to heal the sick and to give the message that the kingdom of God is dawned. It's here. It's broken into this world. It's here. These guys go. And I just guess like we would be. They're just stunned as they go and probably a little nervous and they meet in the synagogue, have lunch with people and they know that, oh, Jesus is sending you. Yeah, we know He's going to come to our town. And they're preaching again from the Scripture. The kingdom's coming. And, and like Jesus, people are being healed. And demons act up. And Okay, in Jesus' name, come out. And demons come out. and <laughs> They're flabbergasted. They are so ecstatic with joy. That's what we read in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. And saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Then Jesus responds. And His response has two parts. Concessive to adversative. It's, in other words, it has the even though this is true, which is great, nevertheless, this is much greater. That's the structure of the text this morning. Even though what is happening in my ministry and it, by extension through you 72 in your joy... <laughs> It's valid, even though this is unbelievably magnificent. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Nevertheless, don't miss the main point. And that's where his imperative verb comes, the command. Rejoice in your personal salvation. So let's look at the first part. The even though this is true part. What is so huge? What is so joy inspiring that these guys come back just saying, this is amazing. Verses 18 and 19. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Jesus says, I know. I saw Satan fall. Just stop on that word there, Satan. I mean, can... We really in the modern world believe in a personal, invisible, unseen being who unleashes havoc on the human race. 
I mean, you can just hear lots of people that you mean you believe in an actual devil. You think about it. Many of those people believe in God. Just you just think, well, don't don't you believe? In a creator? Oh, yeah. In a personal, an unseen, an invisible being who influences the world for good? Yeah. Then why is it so difficult to believe in an unseen personal being who influences this world for evil? You know, I think part of the problem when you use the word Satan or the word the devil in our world, there's images that pop into people's mind. Like this guy running around in a tight one-piece red pajamas with a pitchfork and horns in the head. And you think, where in that world did that come from? Because if you know your Bible, you know it's not here. It came from the Middle Ages where they took Satan very seriously and did not want to be influenced by him. And they knew his greatest problem was pride. Therefore, they said, let's draw pictures, silly pictures, in order to mock him, in order to make fun of him. And so you, if you look back in the age of the idea of Satan developing and these weird kind of ideas with horns and a disgusting face and all that, that's where it, it came about for the purpose of we make fun of him or repel him. Well, then, of course, the next generation comes and the next, and they don't know the reasons this come about. It's just Satan with these pictures, you know. So all the way down the road, Twilight Zone makes an episode with Satan in it, and there's the guy with Horns, you know. Kid comes to your door on Halloween. Oh, you're the devil. Why? Because you got the red suit, you got horns, you got a pitchfork. But those caricatures have nothing to do with the reality of Satan, with the biblical picture of Satan. The word Satan in the Hebrew it means adversary. He is a personal being. He was this high up, not human being, an angelic being. It's a different type of creature with moral culpability to do right as opposed to sin and to do wrong. And this being sinned, rebelled against the Creator before the creation of humanity. And he has become the chief antagonist against God and human beings. He's referred to as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And with him, all kinds of other angelic beings fell, sinned, rebelled. They're referred to as demons or evil spirits. Jesus came to do lots of stuff and connected to his ministry, his incarnation. And he's on the road to the very core of it all, the cross, in the redemption of many human beings in his resurrection. All of that is connected to this warfare with Satan and his angelic host. As John said, Jesus came 
to destroy the works, the effects of the devil over many people. Paul wrote it this way in Colossians 2.15. And he, God, disarmed, took away the weapons of the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. And now, not only back in the first century, in this text, what's happening, but even for the last 2,000 years and today, we see that Satan continues to have some level of reign, of influence. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, these people's case, the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, we're not there yet, but if you noticed in your text in Luke, red letters continue, Jesus continues to speak. And we're going to get there, God willing, next week where He says, it is, I am just rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. This Father, it was Your will to hide the truth to many. But, but it was Your will to reveal it to babes like these 72 and others who respond. And all this is connected with, I saw Satan fall. If you have seen the light of the beauty of the Gospel with a heart of saving faith, Satan's authority and power by Jesus' work on the cross wiped out in your case. Satan in the Bible, he appears as an angel of light, according to Paul many times. He, he appears in the guise of Christianity and through even Christian leaders and preachers with false doctrine. And Jesus says in our text, in verse 18, to these 72 and whoever else is around. I know, guys. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the 72, they're rejoicing. Even the demons are subject to us, to our word in your name. And Jesus responds. I saw literally that I saw is an imperfect tense verb. Literally, it says, I was watching. Satan fall like lightning. Like lightning, I think he means this. Lightning bolts often from up, down to earth. Cracking. Just like lightning. I saw Satan just fall like lightning. Downward. Fast. So in other words, it seems that in this context, I mean, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean? He's explaining what the disciples' authority means by describing the devil's fall from great heights of authority and power. 
And to an extent, it's, he's describing Satan's defeat. Now, there's no way to be certain whether Jesus meant, I saw a vision, which is a biblical thing, or if he's just, he's saying, I saw this in, a, in the sense of these are just prophetic words about the implication of his ministry, and his ministry extended through the 72. It has to do with the downfall of this angelic creature namesake. But, but either way, it's, it's at the same point. His words, I saw Satan fall out of heaven, may be alluding directly to Isaiah 14. Many scholars think so. And so for a minute, chapter 14 of Isaiah, verses 12 to 14. Now, on the surface, this is referring to the king of Babylon. But as often happens in the Hebrew prophets, there are differing levels of meaning going on. And many think behind this, because of the language, it's referring not merely to this human being, the king of Babylon, but to Satan himself. When Isaiah writes, How you have fallen from heaven. Those may be the words Jesus is picking up on. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. How you have fallen from heaven. I know, guys, I have seen Satan falling like lightning from heaven. So, the disciples' ministry What's going on here is that it's giving these strong signals of Satan's defeat by Christ. In the Old Testament, Satan, the adversary, is also known as the accuser. He loves to make accusations against sinful human beings. Like Job. You remember Job chapter 1. God gives us this picture where Satan comes to the throne talking to God and excusing Job. He doesn't really love you. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah writes chapter 3 verses 1 to 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Let's stop for a second. This is why this is, you've got to feel this in what I think is going on in Jesus' ministry. Joshua was born into sin. He deserves damnation. 
As Joshua stands alone, as a sinner, Satan's accusations are absolutely correct. Same with Job. Same with you. But that God sent Christ to pay the penalty and therefore to wipe out the guilt of many people. It's paid for. They no longer stand before the Creator guilty. Job doesn't. Joshua the high priest doesn't. The 72 don't. So that when Satan comes, but he's a sinner, it means nothing if your name is written in heaven because Christ paid it. Back to Zechariah. And with him was Satan standing at his right hand in order to accuse Joshua, the high priest. And Yahweh said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen. Is your name there? The Lord who has chosen. Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? From the sacrifice, from the altar burning. Yes, it's plucked. You have no right to accuse Him. And we see in the Scripture that the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the, as we have been seeing through Luke, the coming of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God with the king. This is the beginning of Satan's end. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, we read this. And the dragon. And his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And we know that at the core of Satan's defeat is Jesus' accomplishment on the cross. On His way to the cross in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this in chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, hear the connection. And when, and I, when I am lifted up, he means on the cross. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Got to get the. What do you mean, Satan? The ruler of the world is cast out. In the hearing of the gospel, is it your experience 
that you were drawn to Jesus. Satan's influence was defeated. He was cast out. That's why you believe. In Revelation 12, verses 10 to 12, we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the Word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay. So we get these biblical pictures of this person, of Satan. Now, back to our text. Jesus is talking in the first century, probably A.D. 33, on His way to Jerusalem. And He speaks of the current defeat of Satan. So, so what's going on? I think this is what He means. This is what's going on. Satan's defeat is part of a long series of events. In other words, the same thing we've been seeing about the theology of the kingdom of God. It's come, it's present, it's here, it's effective, but it's not yet. One day, the second coming, it will be yet. It will be consummated. All the promises, but its effect is here in the present evil world. And Satan is still here. But the death blow has been struck. In the ministry of the 72, is proof of it. It's a sign of the presence of the kingdom. Remember what they were to say. Know that the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, when he says, I saw Satan be thrown down to earth, it's, like D-Day in World War II. D-Day is when the Allies stormed the beaches in France, Normandy, and all the other beaches. It, it, it meant that there was a lot of deaths to do that, but once they took the shores and secured them, the war was over. I mean, there was a lot of deaths still still happened for about a year. A lot of battles to be fought. But once the Allies got on to the continent of Europe, and Germany already had a front on the east with the Soviet Union, and now they got a front on the west, it was over. It was just a matter of time. This is what happens in Jesus' coming of the kingdom of God. This is what He means when He says, I saw Satan. His, his destruction is sure. You can see signs of it now. But it's not consummated yet. It will be one day. And so that's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, Behold, 
I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So he says, and my disciples, as king, they have a role in my authority. They have a right to overcome these hostile, sinful creatures who are represented by serpents and scorpions, by the power of Satan and demons. Jesus says, by being a Christian, by being in the kingdom of God, you're secure in God's hands. Satan's accusations don't mean a hill of beans to God if you're in Christ. Nothing can hurt you, he says. When he says serpents and scorpions, he's most likely, like Jesus is apt to do, referring to Scripture. He's most likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, where we read, The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt... And notice there's lots of types and shadows of historical happenings of deliverance from Egypt, going over into Canaan land, what's happening with God's deliverance, what happens in people's lives spiritually in God's deliverance. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He says, you see the deliverance? Satan's real. Jesus is saying in 72, in His purpose in common, do you see the deliverance of human souls? But, but I don't think that's all that He may have in His mind with this language of trampling on serpents and scorpions. He may also have Genesis 3, verse 15. Remember after Satan, the serpent, deceives Eve, God's judgment comes. And he speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his... Excuse me. He shall bruise your head and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. There's also twofold stuff going on. You see, in Genesis, that refers to the seed of the woman. It refers to people who are born again versus those who aren't going throughout. And like we see with the seed of Abraham, it means all kinds of people. And then it also means one seed, according to Paul in Galatians. As most, many scholars think this is we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcing of the Gospel. It, it, ultimately, it does refer to the seed, singular of the woman of Christ, who will come and in His death and resurrection, He shall destroy, crush the serpent's head for all time. 
And now that seed is here in the flesh speaking to the 72. And He grants to the 72 the same authority now to crush Satan and demons. At the end of Paul's great treatise to the Romans, he writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's the even though. You should ponder how this reality should excite us. Create great joy. Satan's power and authority has been delivered the death blow because of our Savior, Christ. These 72 have experienced it in their ministry firsthand. And now the real point of the text. Nevertheless. You think that's great? It's nothing compared to the never the less. Verse 20. Never the less, guys. Do not rejoice in this, that, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. To become a Christian means that God's very power does dwell within you. Luke makes this more clear in the book of Acts. To actually be a born again human being who is in Christ means that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you. And He gives various kinds of giftings that, that lead to people's salvation and to encouragement. And, and even demons may be subject to you in His name. And He uses you to deliver people. And yet, in the text, Jesus turns these guys' joy the joy of their successful ministry over demons for the sake of other human beings, He turns it away from that to their personal joy in God saving them. That your name are written in heaven. You're in the scroll of the citizens of the kingdom. That language, the Bible, all over the place, it has borrowed it from the ancient cities where the citizens of the city would their names will be recorded in the register of the city's books. So in Exodus, remember Moses, God's judgment is coming down and He's pleading on behalf of the people. And 
Moses, in chapter 32, he says, But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I don't know, could he really mean it? I don't know. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This is an idea that people know in that time what he's talking about. David in Psalm 69.28 as he prays so often against enemies, he writes, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And so the idea in Scripture developed that the righteous, the, the elect, the sons of the kingdom have their names written in the book. The book of life. The book of eternal life. For instance, Daniel chapter 12. We read this in verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Who? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then Paul, just he's talking about a bunch of differing Christians he knows in Philippi, and he's pleading with them, and then he says it this way, all those whose names are in the book of life. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 12, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled. You enroll? Who are enrolled in heaven. In the book of Revelation, a number of times. Chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers, Jesus says, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 17.8 And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will marvel at the beast. Chapter 20, verse 15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter this celestial city. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so Jesus commands the 72 and us. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in how great this is. It's great, great, it is. And it's joy worthy. But in comparison, Rejoice that your names 
are written in heaven. He's saying to every Christian, in comparison even to every great victory you have in life, in ministry, even demons are subject to us. He uses to cast out demonic spirits from these people. Every successful church plant, missionary endeavor, He's saying, great, but rejoice much more when you wake up every morning that your name, your name is written in heaven. That's the question for all of us all the time. Do we obey Jesus? Do we obey His command to rejoice in that? Logically, in order to obey it, you have to feel it. Joy is that way. And if we don't feel it, there can be all kinds of reasons and there's ups and downs. Okay? But at the core, if you don't feel it, you've, don't, you've never tasted even just a little bit of what that feels like. Maybe it's because we have never really felt very lost or doomed before the judgment seat of God. If you ever have near-death experience, you think you're going to die like I did in sitting on a surfboard one day, it took me an hour to get in. Or maybe you're not looking and a car whizzes by you two feet at 60 miles. So now you're like, oh my God. It is amazing how alive you feel at those moments. How precious your family, your wife, your kids here. Thank God. It's the same when we are in touch with the reality of being saved from our sin. Not just the theology of it. Not just, I know what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God and I got all that down, but really feeling and knowing that I justly deserve eternal damnation. The wrath of God. I've been saved from an eternal car wreck. And He mercifully did that. Because He, in mercy, wrote my name in heaven. But, heaven isn't just about, thank God I didn't die eternally. That's not the goal of having your name written in heaven. The goal is not merely to be saved from what you deserved, 
Because God saved us from sin and judgment so that we can know Him and enjoy Him forever. That your name is written in heaven. See, where's heaven? Is God over here? And heaven is this physical place over there? Oh yeah, you're part of the citizen? Uh-uh. Heaven, in the way it means it here, is indistinguishable from God's Trinitarian eternal joy. To have your name, Joe LeMay, Marcelo De Silva, Sean Rice, means it's written on the heart of the Trinitarian, glorious, eternal God. It means this person is created to be redeemed and saved to enjoy me forever. You see, if the Holy Trinity were not the greatest reality in existence, then being saved in order to be with Him would not be the greatest experience possible. What does that mean? If the Holy Trinity were not the greatest reality in existence, then being saved in order to be with Him, in Him, and enjoy Him would not be the greatest possible experience. Jesus says, Nevertheless, as great as this is, do not rejoice, even the demons are subject to you. But have deep joy in the reality that your name are written on my heart. In other words, 72, I know you can have the greatest success in this world in gospel ministry. And that's great. And you're joyful about it. I've called you to it. But don't get confused. Don't confuse that as your first or your root joy. Not the same. But rejoice that you were saved unto the greatest reality. Knowing God. Knowing and experiencing God by the very experience of God Himself permeating you only in part now but with the promise of unboundedness in the resurrection isn't that how Jesus said it John 17 3 
And this is eternal life. That you won't suffer in hell. And this is eternal life. Father, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. This is the core of what it is to be converted to Christ. Now, here's the big question. Okay, really. See, that reality, as big as it sounds, happened to every person who's actually born again to some extent or another. That reality is there. It doesn't mean you have not gone through depression and deep, dark nights of the soul, etc. I just want to get that clear. But, so here's the question. Then. Jesus, if that's true, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Oh, rejoice that my name is written in it. Awesome, I'm saved. If that's true, then why do you have to tell us? Because of God's providence in saving us and leaving us in a sin-darkened world with the flesh. See, He has to tell us because we forget it. Because we're still mortal and we are still sinful with the indwelling of this loving of God in us. And we're in a battle. C.S. Lewis unfolds why Jesus makes this. In the, I mean, in this text and all over the Bible, rejoice in the Lord always. These commands to believers to rejoice. C.S. Lewis unfolds why this ongoing command when he writes in his paper, The Weight of Glory, quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We, we, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when all the while infinite joy is offered us. You see, we, we are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, what Lewis is getting at and what Jesus is getting at is that this demand to be joyful in the Christian life, it's not on the fringes of what Christianity is. It's at the center. And it is His mercy to constantly remind us because it is the shocking wake-up call every day for every Christian to stop finding contentment and satisfaction in all the wrong places. Now remember, the 72 are sent out 
And what's their message? The kingdom of God is here. And we see and have seen that that meant not a physical realm yet. It means there's an invisible reality. It is the saving, merciful, Holy Spirit influence and reign over sinful human beings, drawing many of them up into the kingdom by changing them. That was the, the 72's message in this context. And you remember how Jesus in parables would unfold different aspects of this kingdom. And one way He did it was in Matthew 13, 44, about the kingdom He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up. And then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Conversion to Christ. The whole Christian life is rooted and it's motivated by joy. Do you see what the treasure in the field is? Or the way Jesus says it, do you know what it means to have your names written in heaven? To the extent we do, to the extent we will feel the sweet pleasure of His demand. Rejoice in this reality. See, as great as things are, and things are great, the sun is great. It's awesome that it's there, or we would all perish like that. And it can be beautiful when it sets. As great as wives and children are, as great and especially when it's cooked right with the right flavors that food is and drink and all the other gifts that God gives to us. The ultimate joy that we are to pursue is not the joy of things but it's the joy of who God is even in and through those things. You remember how Jesus said it back in chapter 6 of Luke, starting with verse 22, where He said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice! There it is again. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because, behold, your reward is great in heaven. If Jesus could say, 
that in the midst of such miserable experiences, there's a place to rejoice in the future promise of heaven, then there must be a way to break free from making the precious gifts themselves our God and to rejoice in God and the future even in the gift as we give thanks. There's got to be a way. Distinguish. When Jesus calls us to feel deep joys, we see there in chapter 6, He doesn't do it blinded to the reality of life. To the reality of pain and suffering and persecution. He says even in the midst of it, and He commands, imperative verb, rejoice. Just like the imperative verb in our text. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why is it so important? Because that rejoicing is the key to the Christian life. It is the key to battling sin. It is the key to conquering Pornography. It's the key to conquering anger, gossiping, hatred, apathy. Oh, let's just put them all into there. As Paul does, idolatry. To obey the command to rejoice that your name is written on the heart of God. Heaven is the power to conquer in the Christian life. Do you remember how Jesus said it back in chapter 8 of Luke? Verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the Word of God. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. See, the way to tend that garden of our hearts so that we are not strangled and choked by idolatry and the worries and the cares of everything else around us is not simply by, oh, just stop doing that. Quit it. Because that's nice to say in church, but you go home, you know what real life is about. Those desires are too blasted strong. That pain is too penetrating. That confusion is overwhelming. That's not how you fight it. You fight it by replacing those real desires with much deeper and stronger desires. You place or replace them by the joy 
of all that this means. Your name is written in heaven. By the joy of the future promises of God, beyond the pain and the suffering and the alluring temptations of this life. You replace them by the very present joy of feeding upon God's very words to you with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, practically then, This is why the gospel is so central. To do that, to pursue that, to understand the gospel of justification by faith alone is so crucial. In other words, to, you start this way every day. I try not, I have no joy in God and I'm not trusting in Him. God, I want to move that way. The accuser will speak in your ear. Oh, he'll send one of his guys to do it all the time. You're unworthy. Look at you. Hear that sermon? You have any joy in God? You disgusting little Christian. You start with, on the cross... Jesus wiped away all of your sins. Amen. He wiped away all your failings yesterday, today, and tomorrow to rejoice in God sufficiently enough. That's where you stand in Jesus' perfect walk in His human life of His joy in His Father, which is attributed to you. And then, you trust His promise. That the reality that any of us have ever come to Him was the initiation of this promise. Let me just, I want to move back. What promise? God, as the Holy Trinity, is joyful. He is full of joy. God is the happiest of all beings. God has never come short of being fully, infinitely contented, joyful, happy in the Holy Trinity. The Father in His omnipotence, His all His power, mixed with all of His omniscience, the knowledge of Himself, he, by definition, meaning without beginning or end, has always delighted in that which is most fulfilling, beautiful, and holy. He has, well, 
what is he, there's nowhere to look around. There's only God. And that which is fully joy-giving is God Himself. And He has always thus had an image of Himself, unlimited, so full, that the image of Himself has always stood forth from the Father as His own object in the Son. In other words, there is a type of eternal energy and love that God the Father has always had in the face and the beauty of His own reflection in the second person of the Trinity. That is the essence of His fullness and satisfaction. Indeed, His joy. And the same as the Son would look back into the face of the Father. That community, that fulfillment, that joy is eternal and unlimited. So much so that that joyful delight in love has always stood forth, personified in the person of the Spirit. God creates Mankind falls in sin and is cut off from that Spirit. Jesus comes, does away with what cut us off, our guilt before God. Does away with our enemy, Satan, and demons. And one day, when is it for you? I know I wrote my testimony out. Back in 1981, that very love that God has for God eternally, He dropped into me because of the cross when I was unaware. And I was changed. And how do you know? Because when He brought the Gospel, you realize, how beautiful! Where did that come from? That came from God. The very love that God has for God. Okay, so as we battle, I'm almost done. You trust all of your failings have been dealt with in Christ and you stand before Him with Christ's perfection. And you trust Jesus' promise from John 17. Verse 26. Where He prayed, I, Father, Make known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is not the love of a missionary task of helping downtrodden sinful beings. That is the very eternal love and delight and worship that God has always had in God the Son. (sighs) 
And Jesus says, that very love, Father, why Jesus is saying, I have come and made you known. We're going to see this more next week in His words. You've revealed. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He reveals Him one way. He takes us in our sin and deadness of heart towards God. And He comes in. And it's over. We're done. And we're sealed. And we can taste with the Spirit Himself just a taste of what that is. And it's a down payment of what is to come. And so, we're commanded to rejoice. And therefore, let's go on fighting with the tools He gave us. Let's go on over pornography and bitterness and apathy and every other sin that's so tempting. Put the allurements of true joy before yourselves, which is the Word of God, prayerfully in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And let's pursue knowing more and more the experience of obedience to the command. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And as we Begin to sing now, Lord Jesus. And as we go throughout our week this week, may we all stand on the cross, on the reality that if we have been brought to You, we have been justified once and for all before You. And may we wake up with that great trust. Jesus, even in your incarnation, you prayed. And so, may we know what it is, according to the Apostle Paul, more and more, to be being filled with that spirit of rejoicing and delighting and admiring you to the glory of your name.